All right, let's jump right into Battlestar because we got a lot to cover, Richard. Welcome back. Thank you. As per usual, I've got a little uh, intro I'm going to read here. If I screw it up, I'll just record it again later, but I hope to get through it so you can hear some of the uh, general information that I think we'll end up covering today. Are you ready? Yes, I'm excited. Okay, here we go, Richard. As you may remember, 1978 was a strange time in world history filled with great advances, more genial and menial indications of new directions in pop culture, and darker hints of the price still being paid for the upheaval of the 60s and 70s. Israel and Egypt ended their 31-year war with the Camp David Accords. The first test tube baby was born, and the first female astronauts were announced, among them Sally Ride, who would become the first American woman in space. The Volkswagen Beetle stopped being produced. The Garfield comic strip first appeared. Grease was the top-grossing film in a year that also saw Animal House, Heaven Can Wait, Halloween, Midnight Express, and Superman the movie. On TV, the ABC network was riding high, with all of the top five highest-rated series of the year, Laverne and Shirley, Three's Company, Happy Days, Mork and Mindy, and wait for it, that blockbuster, Angie. ABC's dominance would play a big part in the history of Battlestar Galactica. More ominously, 900 people lost their lives in the murder-suicide atrocity of the Jim Jones People's Temple in Guyana. And David Berkowitz, the son of Sam's serial killer, was sentenced for the eight shootings he committed in the two years prior. Roman Polanski fled Los Angeles on the eve of being charged with statutory rape. The oil tanker Amoco Cadiz ran aground in an epic environmental disaster. A massive earthquake in Iran killed more than 20,000 people. Keith Moon died. Sid Vicious killed Nancy Spungen. What we didn't know yet in 1978 was that America was about to enter a strange decade known as the 80s. But just before we did, on a Sunday night in September, Battlestar Galactica premiered on ABC. The show was the brainchild of Glenn A. Larson, a Southern California native, a devout Mormon with eight kids, and a hard-to-shake reputation as a serial plot thief with the industry nickname Glenn Larceny. Exuding decidedly 1980s Dr. Jerry Buss vibes, exactly how squeaky clean Glenn really was during his Hollywood heyday is a matter perhaps best left to his eventual appearance before the Mormon Church's own Council of Twelve upon his death in 2014. Now, amongst 1978's nine and 10 year olds, it was Star Wars and more Star Wars. And in this pre cable era, a full blown space adventure series with fighters, aliens, special effects, and notably for the preteen boys out there figuring their shit out, incredibly beautiful women and men, well, fire up the launch tubes and sign them up. Battlestar Galactica lasted only one season before being canceled, perhaps just as the show was finding its own terra firma to stand on. A short-lived and batshit crazy follow-up series, Galactica 1980, was an abortive attempt to capitalize on the success of the series, but the chaos amidships on the production and network sides meant that show, too, was headed for the intergalactic scrap heap. But the show has endured. I was shocked to find the official Battlestar Galactica YouTube channel has 151 million subscribers. And legions of people our age, Richard, stride forward robustly to be counted as among the show faithful. Well, we'll have to save your mockery of Angie for another uh, (laughs) another episode. I'm I'm looking forward to talking about this show. Well, I was I I was a big Angie fan and a big Donna Pescow fan. 
Okay. Well, I guess we do see eye to eye on that. In fact, my colleague, Peter Johansson, and I once met Donna Pescow in a bar on the Upper West Side of New York during our time on the Day and Date television series. Mm. I, so you don't see her very much. So no. that was, a, that was a, uh, a lucky sighting. Well, she's counting those Angie dollars. All right. So Battlestar Galactica, Rick, I, let me just start our conversation by saying, as you know, we've been communicating over the last few weeks as we've been watching various Galactica offshoots. I finally watched enough Galactica to transport myself back to my nine and 10 year old self and his appreciation for this show. It took probably, I don't know, 24 or 30 hours of Galactica to finally tip me over into being able to enjoy the show for its own charms and merits and not sort of be looking at it through a contemporary lens. But once I was able to flip that switch, I found a lot to enjoy. How about you? Well, I think one of the interesting things about reviewing this show is you have to decide what you want to get out of it. You know, if you're somebody who wants to get high and watch 24 hours of irony, you're definitely going <laughs> to uh, find yourself fulfilled. If you're looking for good science fiction stories and good character acting and development, it takes a while to click into this show. Once it gets going, which is really about the last third of the show, and we can talk more about that, it starts to get pretty good. Mm-hmm. I would say it only really finds its footing in the very last episode of season one, but okay. that is just about some flaws, I think, inherent in the, in the original decision-making, which we can cover when we get into the cast. Uh, but I agree with you that in general, you have to, more so than other shows we've watched, and I don't know if that's just the science fiction aspect of this. You know, when we watched, when we rewatched KRP, when we rewatched Taxi, you know, those shows hold up to varying degrees uh, because they're situation comedies. And as such, there's a fairly universal set of problems and circumstances that get played with. Now, of course, in science fiction, you have a, such a, a, a much more difficult row to hoe if you're going to decide to do this. And I think more than any show we've done, you really have to remember that in 1978, not only was there not any science fiction on television to speak of at the time, the last big science fiction show was Star Trek, which, as we know, you know, only lasted three seasons uh, in the middle, late 60s. And maybe Star Trek was successful again in reruns at this time, but really there was no major network taking the type of swing that Universal and ABC took to put Battlestar Galactica on the air. And tying back into what I just said in the intro, Glenn Larceny, as he was referred to uh, mockingly behind his back, one presumes, was surely capitalizing on the success of Star Wars in pitching this series anew. And that's how it ended up on TV, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, you know, this was, uh, <laughs> uh, I suppose if they wanted to, you know, find a, um, you know, a showrunner that uh, was going to shamelessly borrow from uh, other people's work and uh, established <laughs> sci-fi uh, tropes with a, uh, with total abandon. They couldn't have found a better person than uh, Glenn Larson. It's interesting too that you're right. There 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 wasn't much if uh, of anything between Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica, with the exception of Space 1999, which I think was on for two years and it was in syndication. So it might've been 
hard for, and it was, I think it was, I think it was also a British production. So um, it's really only something that maybe a small uh, segment of TV watching a sci-fi fans would have seen anyway. When was Space 1999? Can you look that up while I just give you a brief rundown of Glenn Larson's greatest hits? Okay, some of the other shows that Glenn, uh, Glenn A. Larson created and their antecedents, I guess, if that's the right word. He had a show called Alias Smith and Jones, which was a buddy comedy very much in the style of Butch Cassidy and Sundance and the Sundance Kid. He also did BJ and the Bear, which was a direct takeoff of the Clint Eastwood orangutan film, Every Which Way But Loose. And of course, Battlestar Galactica and Star Wars, which shared a certain amount of creative DNA because uh, some of the industrial light and magic designers who had worked on Star Wars and a lot of the heavy lifting of Star Wars in terms of how are we going to work with models and stop motion capture and matte backgrounds and all of this type of work had been done on Star Wars. And so to be able in 1978 to capitalize on this roster of people who had that experience and weren't yet swept up in working on other feature films of the science fiction type, it was kind of a coup for the show to be able to capture that. And I think that was part of the sales pitch. So tell me again, confirm when Battlestar Galactica was on. I'm sorry. Um, Space 1999. Yes. 1975 and 76, two years, oh, okay. and then Battlestar Galactica in 1978. And you can find some other syndicated type, type stuff on TV in the 70s. But interestingly enough, a lot of it comes from uh, from England. Interesting. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd like to revisit um, Space 1999 because I think, I think that was maybe more my show at the time than Battlestar Galactica. Um, I remember it more. I remember kind of having more of a a visceral feeling for it, but I haven't revisited it since then. So I don't know if it would hold up. Okay. Um, so as I don't want to get into the convoluted setup of Battlestar Galactica for people that aren't familiar about it, but perhaps you could give us a brief rundown of what the hell is going on in space. Uh, well, well, what we have here is a pretty uh, dark premise of the show. Um, you have the human um, species uh, of the colonialists who live on, I guess, 12 different colonies somewhere out in space in an uncertain time. Um, and they have been at war for a thousand years with this robotic uh, Cylon empire. And they lose the war in the first three episodes of the show. The Cylons use a, a, a trick convincing our uh, heroic human culture that they are prepared for peace and that what they actually have prepared for is the total annihilation of the human race. The only people that are left are the people who man the Battlestar Galactica and about 200 ships worth of civilians. And they create a convoy in space headed off to find what is a mythical, uh, the remaining a mythical planet in their civilization, which in this case is Earth. And the Cylons believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the Cylons were created by a lizard race who then were overtaken by their own creations? I don't know if it's really spelled out in the show itself. Uh, it, you may be drawing from some other sort of sources out, you know, in the canon of the show about what the real origin of the, of the Cylons are. But we do get some hints throughout the show that, that yes, they were originally some sort of alien uh, race that developed into 
into, into being entirely machines. <laughs> now, as I was watching Galactic at this time, I come out firmly, wholly on the side of the Cylons. <laughs> I, I root Are for- you saying- you're saying that the that the uh, the human wanna, race just isn't worth saving. Absolutely, hundred percent. The Cylons are cooler. They speak cooler. They look cooler. They fly cooler. They're they're just they're just cool. I mean, if how you're dare for, you? Who, if you're looking for who is cool on screen, let me assure you, it's nobody running around in some silly Egyptian tunic. Okay, it is the Cylons. Now, I may be a little bit of a victim of a Stockholm syndrome here, because as you know, my last name is Silo. When my mother and oh. I, when my mother and I moved to West Haven, Connecticut in, gosh, must've been right around this time. My mocked name, Silo, you know, once Battlestar Galactica came on in 1978, I was just mocked by being called a Cylon. That was the level of intelligent humor going on in the West Haven school hallways. So I was either grain brain, which is a bit clever given silo, even though that's with this S, right? A place where you would store missiles or, or grain on a farm. A farm has silos. Uh, I was either called grain brain or Cylon. Those were my two childhood mockery nicknames. And so maybe I've just decided to join the oppressive force rather than fight against it. I see. Well, I'm hoping that this podcast can at least function as maybe a little bit of therapy for you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Now, I, I do want to go into a bit of a nerdy um, run here on the Cylon voices, if you will permit that. Please do. So uh, I'm really doing this probably for just one listener of the podcast, my friend, uh, Stefan Richard up in Montreal, who is a vintage sound design expert and has a number of vintage sound uh, equipment pieces from this time period. But I went down a rabbit hole because... I had sort of a half-assed thought that I would ask Matt to do some portion of my my voice or maybe my intro in a in a Cylon voiceover. But as I jumped into it, it's apparently extremely difficult to replicate what they did. And there is, thankfully, given that we live in the internet age, uh, there is a person on YouTube whose account is SupaJC, S-U-P-A-J-C. And he is also a vintage audio engineer type. And <laughs> he he decided to try to replicate the voice of the Cylons and it turned into an incredible wormhole for him, which ended up finding someone on the original audio production team and asking them a lot of really minute questions about how they did what they did. I just want to run through it a little bit, but I really encourage people to look for his six or seven video series. They're only a few minutes long each, but it's really fascinating how much went into the voice of the Cylons. And if I remember back, to watching this show in real time, that voice was just, you didn't, you had not heard anything like that. Even in Star Wars, we didn't really have voices like that. So that was really kind of the most grabby thing for me at the time. But basically they used an incredible amount of vintage equipment, including a synthesizer known as the, the ARP 2500, which is also the exact same one that you can see in those landing area shots at close encounters of the third kind, when they're playing the notes to the spaceship and the spaceship responds, that is the same synthesizer because that belonged to the composer, Jerry Goldsmith, 
who was working with Universal, and Universal was the studio that made Battlestar Galactica. So that actual synth that you're hearing in Battlestar Galactica is the one that was used in Close Encounters, which is cool. Then it was put through a vocoder. The specific vocoder used after the synth was an EMS-1000, and it also used a effects pe- an effects box, uh, which was a compressor, which was a Teletronics LA-2A. Now, Teletronics also gave all of that computer equipment that you see in the show for use in the show. And then the sound was put through an effects box, which was a Countryman 968A phase shifter. A whole bunch of EQs and preamps were applied. And then an Electrodyne nine-band graphic equalizer was used And all of this was done on an Electrodyne console, which is a recording console. And in all of that processing, which is an incredible amount, they don't know authoritatively whose voice is used. You will see some people listed as, I was the voice of the Cylons, but it's almost certain that none of those people are the voice of the Cylons. There are only actually 14 minutes of recorded Cylon voices used across all seasons of Battlestar Galactica. And there are seven different voices which range in pitch from an F to a B on the musical scale. So the Cylons were an incredibly complicated sound processing thing for its time. And I think that's part of what makes them so cool. I mean, come on, Rick, the Cylons are cool. I'm not saying that the Cylons aren't cool as far as, as far as sci-fi alien or (laughs) sci-fi menacing uh, robotic aliens go. I just, the the leap from the Cylons are cool to the Cylons are better than the humans. Uh, that's a that's a that's a hot take. Okay, it is a hot take, but that's what we're here for. I have another question for you, Rick, about sound effects. You're familiar, I think, from maybe the podcast or on your own, the concept of the Wilhelm scream that's been used in movies and television shows for 50 years. Yes, we've talked about it. Okay. I tried to find the source, the explosions that are used almost exclusively whenever there's a need for an explosion in Battlestar Galactica are also a explosion I think I've heard on every single other period television show of its time, like Columbo, Rockford Files 2. It might be specific to universal television, I'm not sure, but I wasn't able to find out. There's a very specific explosion, and it sounds like this. I'm going to cut it in. I wonder where that came from. Right. Maybe there's some sci-fi movie from the 50s or 60s that was the the original uh, (laughs) creation of that sound. Shall we jump into our thumbs up, thumbs down segment? Absolutely. Okay. Let's run through some of the characters first. And then I think you also did, and I think I also did some things like some of the special effects and the sets and things like that. Let's start with the ostensible star of the show is Apollo, played by Richard Hatch. Thumbs up or thumbs down for you? I gave Apollo a thumbs up. Wow. I gave Apollo a thumbs down. What's what's the thumbs up portion for you? Well, I think again, everything that you that you're you that you get from this show is kind of a little bit on a curve, uh, including the 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 starring actors, Richard Hatch and Dirk Benedict. Is their acting bad in this show? Yes. What about their characters? And I feel like they're, it takes some time, but by the time I got to the end of the show, I really started to like them both. 
Mm. I never thought necessarily that their that their acting got uh, uh, remarkably better, but I did feel like the characters themselves started to get some depth toward the last third of the show. They became heroes to me. They were both certainly less wooden than the their counterparts in Galactica 80. We'll get to that. But I liked I liked Richard Hatch. I thought he was I, I wish that we'd had more time with this show for him to really uh, blossom. I, I will agree with many things on the show. Had ABC renewed it for a season two, which they think they should have done, I think that the show would have actually become much more professionalized in all regards. And there's a track record on a lot of Glenn A. Larson shows where he sort of gets less involved as the show goes on, because I don't think he was a great day-to-day showrunner or a great day-to-day writer. And I think given the way that this first season unfolded, I think there's a lot of evidence to say, had ABC picked it up, which again, going back to them being kind of the number one network at the time, the bar was much, much higher for Battlestar Galactica ratings-wise than it would have been if it was on CBS or NBC at the time. On those two networks, the show would have easily been renewed and they probably would have stuck with it. But on ABC, which was having an abundance of riches, it just didn't rate high enough for them to justify the price tag. And it was a very expensive show to produce. As for Apollo, and I think I'll just throw Starbuck in here. We could just talk about them because they are our two main protagonists here. I gave them both thumbs down. The characters as written and as presented throughout the entirety of season one, they just, if, if the premise for Starbuck is, you know, sexy, daring, uh, <laughs> ne'er-do-well, who smokes cigars and is a womanizer, well, guess what? They completely neuter that premise by not only having his supposed main love interest just drop out in the in the Marin Jensen Athena character. She sort of is around, but they don't really do much with their relationship. And meanwhile, he is in much more of a relationship with who they refer to as Cassiopeia. And we'll talk about the pronunciations in a bit because I find it a little odd. But Cassio, Cassio, Cassiopeia, the Lorette Sprang character, who is a prostitute, in the first several episodes. Yes, was a prostitute. Then she becomes a nurse. She becomes a nurse and performs, you know, open heart surgery, which is just <laughs> which is just a level of ridiculousness too far. I mean she also knows a ton about genetics. <laughs> she can do genetic testing. I mean, so that doesn't work. So he isn't really a, he he's not a Kirk style love him and leave him. He doesn't have liaisons with anyone else uh, on any planet in any galaxy throughout any of the 24 episodes in season one. So that doesn't work. And he isn't what they wanted him to be. And you can hear him speak sort of off the cuff, I guess, later in his life about what he wanted to do with the character and what the network didn't allow him to do, et cetera, et cetera. Now, as for Richard Hatch, uh, may he rest in peace, Apollo. He's just boring, Rick. He's just a drip. He's a wet blanket. He doesn't he doesn't liven anything up in any scene that he enters. He's just a downer. If everyone right. is, is ever, if everyone's having fun in a scene, however irresponsible the fun might be, well, guess what? Here comes Debbie Downer, son <laughs> of the commander to really bring things down. So mm-hmm. they didn't give Richard anything really to do. It's not a formed character. He doesn't have any love interest outside of what's her name who gets killed off after the first three episodes. Well, and then in the, then we get Sheba. Yeah, but give me a break. Like that's—is that even consummated? I, I don't. Well, know. In, the, a 
Well, in your in uh, what you regarded as the best episode of the series, the Hand of God, they I guess both, they get they get together. Both yeah. guys pair off with their true with their I guess their their full time yeah. loves. Um, I disagree with you about a couple of things. One is with Starbuck that for a lot of the show, he's back and forth between uh, Athena and Cassiopeia. At one point, he has them. He has one in each. He has he has each one in a hotel mm-hmm. room in the same hotel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's. I've and seen, I've seen that storyline on the Love Boat for twenty years. So <laughs> I'm not saying it's a good it's, story. It's just, I'm just, you, know, you, you say it's got to be graded on a curve, and I'm not sure why. Like <laughs> we can talk frankly about the show, and we can appreciate the show's charms, of which there are many. But let's just be clear: these are not well cast to leading roles. Like they just didn't cast them well. I mean, I, I, I. I you know that I have the hot take that I actually think the two guys put in those two roles for, for Galactica 80 are far better than these two uh, are in their roles. So we'll get to that later. So okay. I don't want to bog down on these two, but I just don't think very much of either of these actors. Mm-hmm. I think Richard Hatch is a very beautiful looking person. Uh, he was a soap actor before this. Apparently there was some difficulty in casting this part and him. And I'm not sure that the casting process was friendly to the show itself. Um, we'll talk a little bit about some alternative casting when we get through this. So, All right. And I would just say to the listeners of this pod- podcast, <laughs> go back and watch that last episode, Hand of God. You get to see a little bit more of Apollo's character where he's built that sort of uh, monitoring telescope thing up on the top of the ship. <laughs> you get to see a little bit more about what, you know, what his what he dreams about. Uh, I would watch that. And also the last episode of Galactica 80, where Dirk Benedict's character is stranded on the planet with the Cylon. And it's got some stupid uh, uh, plot turns as well, but it's a really good Dirk Benedict uh, vehicle, probably the best. Okay. Well, there you have it, kids. Grading on a curve, uh, Professor Rick Brown. Now, <laughs> uh, let's talk about Adama, Lauren Green. I gave him a thumbs up. I gave Adama two thumbs up. Wow. Is this like a daddy issue coming through? Yeah, I think, I think we're probably <laughs> revealing a little bit of, uh, you know, something uh, lying, something missing from my childhood here. But uh, I just have such admiration for Adama's character, for his look, for his stentorian voice. <laughs> uh, Lauren Green and anything is, is great. Uh, I don't think that, you know, even in... Uh, episodes where the writing is weak he's so reliable in other words all of them yeah yeah um he is reliable he he can no one conveyed gravitas like lorne green in his prime no yeah he was awesome uh i was a little one of the many things that was disappointing about galactica 80 was lorne green's character sort of having to become um sidelined yeah uh and grow a beard yeah, in ways that we, that uh, we may have time to talk about, but in the first ep- in the first season of this show, he's one of the he's you know he's one of the pillars and one of the one of the things that that makes the show interesting and watchable. Now, I'm going to suggest just to be contrarian, Rick. I, I think that the Adama character is a bit one dimensional in the series. I don't get to see a lot of other sides of Adama, which I think would have been interesting, and I think Lauren Green could have done. But I think in the kind of rigid construct of the show, there's an interesting way in which 
The characters in it, this is probably, again, a result of this show. Unlike Star Trek, this show did not have uh, well-known science fiction writers contributing to the scripts or contributing to the ideas or the setups of the scripts. I think that certainly in the first season, it looks like Glenn A. Larson and then a little bit more Donald Belisario is another phenomenally successful show creator and showrunner starts to have a little bit more involvement in some of the better episodes pointedly, but it seems like a lot of the first season really relied on Glenn Larson's writing. And I didn't see a large writer's room contributing to these things. And I'm not sure that Glenn A. Larson's strength was character depth and, you know, giving characters interesting episodes in which to show other aspects of their personality. So I don't think he's well used, but I think it's impossible not to love and appreciate Lauren Green. And when you read about the making of, of course, he's the person you would hope him to be. There's a funny anecdote where people say, you know, sometimes people thought Lauren was pretentious, but it's only because they didn't understand that that was his voice. So if he was talking about picking up the newspaper, it sounded like the most serious proclamation. I'm going to pick up the newspaper. I mean, it's just, he can't say anything without sounding like it's the voice of God whether it's an Alpo commercial, Battlestar Galactica, Gunsmoke, whatever it is. I mean, the guy just had something completely unique. Lauren Green? Yes, ma'am. Oh, now, don't tell me about Alpo. I use a dry. You do? Then try this dry. Alpo beef-flavored dinner. They're all alike. Not really. There's only one Alpo. It's got protein flavored with real beef juices. The taste of beef dogs love. Taste of beef, huh? Yep. And now your dog can get that great Alpo taste, too. I'll try it. Try the drive from Alpo. After all, who knows more about the taste of beef than Alpo? Right. Well, in this show, we're not really getting the sort of alien of the week uh, type mm-hmm. of episodes that you got, that you might, that we're used to on Star Trek and other shows. This, even though we have different stories this whole first season is kind of one long arc of uh, the Galactica on the run, (laughs) the highly sort of paranoid atmosphere from both uh, the people who are chasing them and all kinds of parties inside of society itself. And there's really no time that we get in this one year of the show where we can slow down and get good character pieces to get exposed to some of the, um, the inner life mm-hmm. of, of the Adama character or the other people that we're talking about here. If you, if, you, if you compare it to Star Trek The Next Generation, where we had somebody who was as much of an authority in Captain Picard, who then also was given stories, love stories, you know, you know personal uh, uh, anxieties, stuff like that, that made for a rounder character. We just didn't have the time or the uh, exposure to Adama in that way. And I also want to give Battlestar Galactica its props for being a super important part of the firmament of television science fiction, because without Galactica, you wouldn't have had some of the subsequent shows be quite what they what they were, You know, whether that was other Star Trek uh, iterations or things of that nature. So Absolutely. I mean, you can find a million things in this show that are ripped off from Star Wars or ripped off from Star Trek. But take a look at that episode, the episodes with the what are they called? The Nomen? uh, Yeah, Nomen. Yeah, the Nomen, which 
1979 is maybe about 78, 79 is 10 years ahead of the, mm-hmm. well, I guess the, I was thinking of the Star Trek Klingons. I guess they come around the mid eighties in the movies, but it's, it, it seems pretty clear that when they were deciding how and in Star Trek, how to kind of redesign what, how the Klingons would look more alien than human, they draw a lot off of this show. Yeah. The Nomen are great. I think a lot of the, you know, you said we don't really have the alien of the week and it's, it's unfortunate in a way because I think the show, when it, when it does focus on some recurring uh, characters like the Nomen who are these just extremely, <laughs> uptight, dangerous, angry, bloodthirsty tribe. Um, they're amazing characters, and I think they're portrayed really well, and I loved sort of how they were used. So it's kind of unfortunate that they didn't get subsequent seasons in which to flex those muscles a little bit. Yeah. Um, let's talk about two of the main female leads. So we have Athena, who's played by Marin Jensen. I gave both her and Cassiopeia thumbs up. Oh, why? Well... I'll tell you why. Marin Jensen, particularly, I gave a thumbs up for because she's obviously extremely beautiful. That's let's be let's let's be real. This show, whoever was casting the show, if it's Glenn A. Larson, I'm not going to intimate that there was maybe a casting couch going on here. But I've never seen a show that consistently has the most beautiful women in even bit parts, and there are some beautiful women in recurring parts as well. But Marin Jensen is actually, I think, a really good. TV actor, and I think acquits herself quite well. And had they given her more to do, I think she could have done it. Uh, so I thought she wasn't just a pretty face. Let me put it that way. I thought she was sly and funny, and she could convey emotion quite well. So I thought that was a pretty rare find on television. And for Lorette Sprang, who played Cassiopeia, again, I enjoyed her much more when she was the bad girl who everyone looked down upon uh, that you met in the first, you know, two or three episodes, because that's such an interesting storyline to carry around as an actor, which is the fact that everyone's thinks you're a prostitute and looks down on you. Uh, But of course they did away with that and they made her this virtuous, you know, medical professional. And I thought her scenes with uh, Dirk Benedict's Starbuck character, at least crackled with a little life, and since I don't believe he had any life as an actor, I have to <laughs> assume that comes from her. Right. Well, I gave Athena just a neutral. Uh, I don't dislike uh, her character or, or her acting. I just feel it's unfortunate that she was so underutilized. And they kind of, she becomes kind of a Gumby character where first she's a warrior, then she's a school teacher, then she's an officer on the bridge. Mm-hmm. And then she just disappears altogether without any explanation. Yeah. Um, whether her, she, why her character was dismissed from the show, I don't really understand. They replaced, um, you know, a female lead with another actress who became Apollo's love interest in the show and her acting, uh, we can talk about Sheba if you want, but she didn't bring anything more, uh, dramatically inspiring than, uh, than the actor actress who was playing Athena did. I know Athena is Apollo's sister on the show, uh, part-time um, Starbuck love interest. I just feel like it's hard to assess Athena because she's so, as you said, she's so underutilized. So I gave her a neutral. Cassiopeia, 
I don't see the things you're talking about with that character. I find her acting a challenge through the whole show. And then uh, at the point when the show itself begin, becomes more interesting, she feels like a weight. Um, yeah, but she, again, that's because of what they made her. That's that's not her fault. That's because they made her do this ludicrous turn from, <laughs> what's the term they use in their made-up language? She's not a prostitute. She's a... Uh, uh, so, uh, she uh, she's a what a solicitor solicitor or something? No, it's it's oh god, I can't remember the name of it. It's it's got the it's something in their made up language. But that's that they're doing that to the actor because they made her take this ludicrous turn. Because I guess ABC was so prudish at the time that, uh, and I believe she was one of those characters that wasn't supposed to stick around very long. Like Jane Seymour's character wasn't supposed to stick around for a couple more episodes, but uh, did. Okay. Yeah, she's a social, a social leader, a social leader. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, speaking of the language, just to digress for a second, social leader, uh, Cassiopeia versus what I always assumed is Cassiopeia. That's how I was raised to say that word, Cassi- Cassiopeia. But in the show, they say Cassiopeia. And when uh, what's his name shows up and is the chameleon character, it's pronounced Chameleon. <laughs> um, is this supposed to be uh, like uh, they Fred Astaire? Fred Astaire, yeah. Is this supposed to be like it's so many thousands of years from our time that they've forgotten how to pronounce words? What is the deal? Yeah, I think there's some dialect shift um across the galaxy a little bit. Okay. So would you say Cassi- Cassiopeia? To be honest, I would say Cassiopeia. You would? Yeah, but I would never, not say I would I've not never say heard that. chameleon. I've never heard Cassiopeia. Hmm. It's Cassiopeia. No one, no one listening to this pod has ever heard Cassiopeia. Right. Well, we're from different parts of the country. You, you've heard that? I've only I can a Cassiopeia sounds um, unnatural to me. And chameleon. Chameleon also sounds unnatural. So, I mean, the presence of chameleon proves that Cassiopeia is a choice, not an accepted pronunciation. You're the boss. So, anyway, uh, Commander Ty, big thumbs up for me. Yeah, another guy who seems like a pretty strong actor and uh, an interesting enough kind of subordinate you know, a guy who's between um, our stars, you know, our young stars and Lauren Green, uh, a little underutilized. I would like to see more of him, but I, I did like that actor and I gave him a thumbs up. I, I agree. The construct of the show doesn't do him any favors because I, I think in a season two, you'd have to sort of, it almost feels like you have two commanders, right? Like you have, you have Adama and then you have Commander Ty and they both authority figures who people on the bridge have to listen to. I guess the only difference is when Adama's around, they listen to him. And when Adama's not around, they listen to Commander Ty. So it was a little crowded on the deck, but I liked that he got to be exasperated. He got to have some comic foil moments where he's, you know, drinking on the job when he's not supposed to. And he gets to be kind of emotionally outraged at things he views as wrong. He gets to be kind of the emotional one where Adama is the cool, calm, rational one. So yeah. And also the actor, really interesting. Did you know he was a news anchor on WBZ in Boston? Absolutely not. The first African-American news anchor, in fact. Okay. Interesting. That is interesting. Foxy, thumbs down. Uh-huh. 
Um, don't you know, tell me. Don't tell me you're going to give him a thumbs. No, I, I, I gave Boxy <laughs> a thumbs down. I, you know, I don't want to get in the habit of just, uh, you know, hating kids on sci-fi shows and, um, <laughs> uh, because they are there, uh, and they're, they're supposed to be precocious and, and mm-hmm. cute. Um, I just don't, I don't see where they got this kid. Uh, he you mean, is you mean as, you mean as an actor or as a yes. character? I mean, he might be a nice guy in real life, but that actor is, uh, wow. It's, so, it's Noah Hathaway. If you're listening right over it. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not a great character. It's, uh, it's kind of forced into the proceedings and never really has a use beyond the first two hour premiere special where his dog is killed. And then we have to deal with Muffet. Right. But, um, well, yeah. and he's another one that by the, by the last third of the show, you know, I think that oh, on. for whatever, whatever reason, they decided to retool some things and he disappears. Yeah, well, I guess it just wasn't really working. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Apollo is supposed to be his father at that point, I guess his adoptive yeah. father, right? Mm-hmm. The Jane Seymour, his mother, Jane Seymour, is also dead. So, again, just a lot of poor sort of construction of the central idea stuff that I think they would have worked out. The show works better in the latter episodes, I think, because you don't have a lot of this clutter, you know, and maybe they did some of that math. It's like when we were talking about Taxi, you know, and they were kind of realizing that when they had the John character and the Jeff character, it's it's just one character too much. You can put lines and character stuff in the mouths of some existing characters and maybe you do need to pare down and find find the center of the group of characters that spark and click off of each other. Double down there and go forward accordingly. That's a good way of phrasing it. I felt that that uh, you know, Boxy made the show too busy. And also they had a little bit of the Spock-Kirk thing with Richard Hatch and Dirk Benedict because, as we said, Richard Hatch's Apollo is really the star of the show outside Adama. But it's really he's really the male. He's the lead. But it was the Dirk Benedict Starbuck character that was the popular character. And that created a little friction between the actors on the set and was something that the show had to kind of figure its way through. I mean, you'll notice there's a lot more sort of solo Starbuck episodes that I saw than there are solo Apollo episodes. Again, going back to the fact that, unfortunately, Apollo's a bit of a drip. So when they send him to the Western planet, it's just, again, the wet blanket aspect of it doesn't really work. Whereas you can send Starbuck places and you have a little bit more to work with. So yeah. Muffet, I gave a thumbs down to the robotic dog. Again, this just made me want to have an armada of Cylons enter in and just vaporize everything with laser rifles. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you want to, do you want to go talk a little bit about what this, what goes on with this Muffet uh, behind the scenes? I do, but I want to be clear that my dislike for Muffet preceded my learning how they did Muffet. Okay. Well, I'm going to go on record as saying I think Muffet is cute. (laughs) I give him a thumbs up. Wow. Talk about grading on a curve. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Do you see a personality in Muffet that you enjoy? You see a a usefulness in Muffet? Well, there is an episode where uh, where he uh, goes into that uh, <laughs> that uh, sort of air duct and saves everybody's life. We don't get a lot of Muffet sa- Muffet saves the world, but 
Yeah, you know what kills the drama of any Muffet saves the world scene? Yeah. 45 minutes it takes Muffet to cross a room. Two. those robotic sound effects. Oh my God, a regular dog could just leap and bound over there, but we can't do that because we unfortunately have a chip. I thought they did a good job with the puppetry and the editing of whatever what, what was going on in that suit to make it look convincingly, not like a dog, but like, you know, a live action animal. You mean the moving eyes and mouth and ears? Yeah. Okay. I wasn't aware until doing research that there's a chimp in the suit. Were you aware of that? As a kid, I never knew what it was till we started doing research on this show. I just always assumed it was just a puppet. I found that also kind of horrifying. There's some funny anecdotes where, you know, they had, I guess, a male chimp and a female chimp. And I think the female chimp was much more docile and able to perform tasks as required. The male is a little bit more flighty. And there's a funny scene, there's a funny story about a scene where the elevator doors have to open and Boxy is supposed to be. Uh, sitting in the elevator doing something and because they had filled the elevator with smoke and lights or whatever when they shot the scene the door opens and boxy's head is the only thing in the (laughs) elevator because the chimp ripped the head off and fled up through the escape hatch in the elevator car (laughs) so you know to me that would have been a much more interesting thing to actually see boxy do rather than i'm sorry muffet uh, yes. Yeah, I hated Muffet. Now, let's get to something I loved. Baltar, John Colicos. Uh-huh. Two, big, two big thumbs up. Again, this is sort of what, what I was trying to talk about when we came in on uh, what is it that you, not you, what does one want to take away from this show? If you want to take away lots of uh, ironic laughs at, uh, it, you know, incredibly... Uh, <laughs> Uh, scene chewing acting. This guy will give. This guy gives it to you in almost every. Well, what else are we watching TV for, Rick? It's 1978. I mean, we need no, an I mean, I, here. I love it. Um, <laughs> I mean, scenery chewing doesn't even do this guy justice. I mean, we've talked about some scenery chewers. My God, I mean, when you have Ray Milland who doesn't even chew scenery as much as this guy, this guy, John Colicos, man, full praise, full respect. <laughs> this guy, I've never seen anyone act in a green velvet you know, gloved suit uh, <laughs> with a terrible wig. Uh, so, con- so enjoyable. Every moment this guy is on screen, I am just having a ball. And again, it's just like rooting for the bad guys. I guess that makes me whoever it makes me, but that's who I'm rooting for because he's at least got some, some, some oomph, you know, some chutzpah. Yeah. So I loved him. Uh, I had a question though, a continuity question. Do you think that on his long confinement on the prison barge, is he able to get his green velvet uniform and gloves dry cleaned regularly? Do you think? What about what about laundry on the Galactica and the attendant vessels? It's a good question because he does. I mean, he if you're following the continuity of the show, he has to be locked up for you know sectong. And uh, when they do, when every time he does kind of get out of the, get out of prison, he's still wearing that same, uh, that same getup. Uh, what are the, I, I wrote down some of the strange time things, which 
some people love that about Galactica. What's your take on the use of like yarns, sectons? So the time units that were invented here include millisentons, which is approximately equivalent to a second. A centon is a minute. A centaur is an hour. A cycle mm-hmm. is a day. A sectan is a week. A sectar is a month. A quatron is unknown, perhaps a 25 centaur day, or mm. maybe a quarter yarn. <laughs> a yarn is a colonial year, and a centuron is a colonial century. And then we also have distance units, microns, uh-huh. metrons, and then the famous expletives, uh, which are probably the most enjoyable. So instead of saying fuck, they say frack, mm-hmm. uh, felger carb. Gall mogging right, kind of bullshit. Bullshit. Yeah. You know, gall mogging is kind of like goddamned. Uh-huh. Uh, did you enjoy that? Did that enhance the science fiction universe for you? Yeah, I think it's I think it's it's funny uh and it helps you sort of engage with the <laughs> the universe of the show. It, the, you know, they work essentially as catchphrases because they're things that are repeated so often and it's very it's usually pretty clear what they're trying to say, even though they're using made up words. I find it kind of, it gets in the way of my understanding of some plot points. Cause unfortunately with the distance and stuff and the time stuff, you know, that stuff is used when we're in kind of these exposition moments where we need to know how much time we have for something. Right. So when they're doing a countdown or there's a dist, you know, how far do we have to travel and how much time do we have to get there? It's all in this made-up language, which which kind of is a drama-robbing choice that I think I wonder if they would have stayed with. Maybe you couldn't get away with it after you set it up. Uh, yeah, there's a uh, one of one of the episodes that I really liked was the the two episode arc of the Ice Planet Zero, mm-hmm. and there's that's a very sort of like countdown to disaster yes. show where they keep using the word uh, centons, right, and. I think it's sentons and it's not really clear that they're using it consistently in that show, the way that it's used later on. And I did read a story about somebody confronting Len Larson about the, the fluctuating use of senton in the show. And apparently he just got angry uh, and refused (laughs) to take it, ever answer that question directly. Yeah. I don't think Glenn, um, he wasn't quite a Gene Roddenberry esque figure by, even his own son's recollection in the making of book that I think you read and that I read in preparation for this. Uh, I'm not quite sure what his real specific skill and talent was, but well, he was also, uh, you know, elemental in a, uh, in a, in a, a four man harmonic vocal group. <laughs> yeah. Elemental. Okay. In the, the early sixties, the four preps. Is that, a, is that known to you before going into this rep, this, this research? Well, I certainly know know the four preps. I didn't know that he was connected. I didn't know that he was a, a prep. Oh, well, you know, there's some funny anecdotes in the book about Glenn sort of, he doesn't come across very well. Let's put it that way. He comes across like a guy. There's one anecdote where they're literally going across the street from the universal lot for lunch. But Glenn A. Larson has his limo, which has a full Betamax setup and a IBM Selectric typewriter, which is plugged in and operable in a phone. And he uses the limo to get from the lot to go out the driveway across the street into the parking lot of the restaurant they're going to dine at because he sounds like a guy who wanted everyone to know that he had these things. And even his own son has an anecdote where (laughs) 
he, he actually tells the anecdote that his father going to the Star Wars premiere dropped a do you know who I am on the usher at the movie theater. Now, I don't care who you are. If you ever drop a do you know who I am, you're a <laughs> douchebag. So unfortunately, that's why I think Glenn doesn't come across particularly well in the own telling of either creatively or personally. So I'm not quite sure how this guy managed to have the career that he had, because it's kind of interesting. I mean, once you see like Donald Belisario start to contribute scripts, all of a sudden those episodes sort of rise up and feel a little bit more like the TV series that we're used to watching. Yeah, that's what happened. I, mean, I went back to, cause I wanted to just kind of run through the, the writers of the, uh, the episodes that, uh, that I thought stood up uh, and every one of them was the Donald Belisario episode. Indeed. So, I mean, I think that tells you something right there. And again, I think that's something that would have been corrected in season two and season three. I think if they got to season two, it probably would have run for five or six seasons. And I think they would have had a professional writing staff and they would have used this world that they set up, which is a compelling one. And the model making and the special effects and all that stuff really starts to level off and get really, really used well. Uh, staying with the bad guys, uh, another Cylon that I loved is Baltar's, I guess, right-hand Cylon, which is Lucifer. Mm -hmm. Thumbs up for me. Yeah, I mean, you got to love this character, uh, especially if you love if you just love camp, I don't know if people were aware at the time that the show was on, that that's the voice of uh, Dr. Smith from lost in space, Jonathan Harris, right. who is uh, sort of one of the, uh, who becomes on that show, one of the campiest characters in TV history. <laughs> yes. And here he is, here he is playing another, you know, fastidious, <laughs> you know, talking out of the side of his mouth type character, mm -hmm. but it also happens to be, a robot. What's the one I sent you the clip of that's so brilliant when Lucifer is has is kind of being one upped by another similar class of Cylon that's kind of buttering up Baltar. And yeah, that that character was uh, Scorpio or somebody. They're pretty. They're okay. fairly similar. And then there's there's then Scorpio finally has to admit that he didn't get something done, and they do this brilliant cutaway to Lucifer, who's like, hmm. Do you have the coordinates of the Galactica? Uh, no. Hmm. Just with the, that great Dr. Smith kind of bitchiness. Yeah, I think Scorpio only appears in one episode, but uh, he, really, he really shows us that that whole class of Cylon uh, robots is, for some reason, designed to be very, very gay. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny because on the one hand, you could look at the casting and you could say that in a way they did some admirable use of the black characters because no, it's never mentioned or referenced, right? There's no, they don't do a racism episode, for example. You know, these characters are just characters like any of the other characters. On the one hand, yeah. it's kind of interesting that way. And it, and it sort of presents a hopeful version of the future, I suppose, where, you know, maybe race isn't such a divisive thing in society anymore. But another way, again, it feels like some dramatic opportunity might be left aside. Uh, speaking of the other black main black character, Lieutenant Boomer. I thought he was a good actor. Again, uh, I would have liked to have more exposure to that character. We get a lot of exposure to him in his in his uh, triad uh, uniform with the, the the man bra and the oh and the uh, 
the panties. Yeah, that makes um, us, that makes Sean Connery's Zardoz singlet look like a, a modest costume. The triad outfits, right? Those those right. briefs, my god. Uh, I did like that actor. He is one of the only two that uh, gravitate over to Galactica 1980. One of my favorite characters gets a thumbs up. Sergeant Jolly. <laughs> Tony Swartz. <laughs> right? I had a lot of love for this character. He's one of your favorite characters. Because he's got something. He's, he's got a reason for being. He's different than the other guys. He's the portly, lovable kind of fighter pilot. I mean, there's, there's precedent for this. We had this in Star Wars. He's the version of that character. So okay. Porkins in Star Wars, if you, if you recall, is a beloved character uh, who, oh. who is a Jedi pilot and is yeah. also somewhat overweight. And again... I'm just looking for any kind of like mirth and reason to enjoy myself in these first kind of 20 episodes. So anytime someone appears on the screen, that's just giving me a little bit of a little bit of a break from the stentorian seriousness and kind of lack of action too, by the way, which, you know, is one of the things they talk about in the making of book. ABC was so uptight about violence on screen that I think they limited them to like five or six expressions of violence per episode, which is why I laughed out loud in one of the later episodes. It might be the hand of God episode where there's, there's a, there's a time when I think it's uh, Starbuck shoots like eight Cylon warriors with one shot. Because yeah. I guess to individually shoot them would have put them over the ABC limit of violence allowed. Uh, so you sort of have this ridiculous, like, wait, how did that happen? Uh, but yeah, I enjoyed Sergeant Jolly and just because why not? Okay, I'll give him a uh, a neutral, as I will, Ed Bailey Jr. as Flight Sergeant Greenbean. Uh, I, I would have liked to see more of either. But. Yeah, well, Flight Sergeant Greenbean just is there to, to show you kids in 1978 that if you two suffer from a lisp, that's not going to prevent you from being a colonial warrior. <laughs> How about Flight Corporal Regal, played by Sarah Rush? She is the character who engages in the most countdowns uh, of centons and microns and centaurs and whatever else the time units are. Mm-hmm. She sort of looks a little bit like a young Sally Field. Kind of miscast to me. I don't know why I didn't like it. So I give her a thumbs down. Okay. Well, I'll give her a neutral too. Interesting. She actually uh, sort of by accident ends up being the only other character that carries over to Galactica 1980 just because they're reusing footage. <laughs> it, uh, they're using, reusing scenes from the bridge that they had deconstructed for the show, but they wanted to uh, reintegrate some footage and show she kind of is flashed into certain episodes of Galactica 1980. Well, I would have liked to see more of Athena doing something than having her oddly replaced by uh <laughs> some worst acting on behalf of uh, Anne Lockhart. You no, know, I didn't even notice that Athena was gone, to be honest with you. I thought they were both around once Anne Lockhart shows up. Is that not true? No, Athena's last episode, I think, is, well, it's around the time of that double, um, the War of the Gods episode, mm. um, which is the one with Patrick, uh, with the one with Patrick McNee. Uh, I don't remember exactly who's in what, but it's, Either that is the last episode for Athena, Boxy, um, hmm. Muffet. Uh, they're all gone after Did that. Did they get killed? No, they just disappeared. No, see, I mean, at least if they killed them off, it would have been something. 
some pathos. No, that's episode 15, 16, and then they're not in any more episodes after that. Also, by the way, Rick, big thumbs up for the units, the clinky gold ingots that are used. I loved that as a kid. I loved the concept <laughs> of having those. Maybe maybe it was my uh, poverty-stricken childhood, but um, mm-hmm. I just can't get enough of any scene where there's stacks of those gold ingots. That just That really resonated with me as a kid. I guess you had no feelings about them. I don't really, I don't feel strongly about it. I'm going to give the ingots a neutral. Uh, okay. Um, I give the model making, you know, the, the, the ships, the star, the, the starships and all the different craft. I, I give that a big thumbs up. I think that's very well done. Um, probably better than they're used to be honest in the early kind of going. But I think once the show starts to hit its, hit, hit its footing, you know, really, again, I, for me, that doesn't really happen until the very last episode, but, I think they they really built an effective and repeatable roster of locations that were all pretty well rendered for their time. So I give the model making a thumbs up. Yeah, I think as far as the model making, the you know in space battle scenes, uh, that all works for me. Uh, I, you know, I think it was a lot of that was the real intent of the show that they wanted to have lots of fight scenes and, and lasers. And the show was pretty successful at that from the very beginning. If for no other reason than the models are good and they move really well. Mm-hmm. I realized that the Vipers are a knockoff of the Star Wars uh, X-Wing fighters. The Cylons ships look a lot and at least move a lot like the TIE fighters. I don't know if you got into the whole history behind the special effects and the two guys that came over from Star Wars to do this show. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, it looks a lot like Star Wars, uh, but it's also one of the strong, one of the things that makes the show good. Yeah, and there was a lawsuit between Lucasfilm, I guess, and Universal once the show got on the air. I think that Lucasfilm had noted something like 80 similarities to characters, uh, models, premises, all this, uh, which was eventually settled. I'm not sure. Probably settled in Lucasfilm's favor, I would imagine. Uh, but I don't know the, the specific details of that. Um, the firing tubes were super cool, if overused. I mean, in every episode, there's the firing tubes you know, shot of the fighters being launched. That never really got tired as a kid. I think you could see that over and over again. The head going back as the fighter took off was just one of those seminal things. And I also want to shout out sort of like at this era, this is the dawn of the video game era. You know, when you're, when you're a kid and you have early Atari or you're starting to go to arcades or things of that nature, you know, there's also when those firing, when they're, when they're firing the fighters, uh, there's also frequently the shot of the joystick with the three buttons as they either hit turbo uh, or fire their laser cannons. And I think that early joystick stuff also resonated with kids of the era because that was something that we were kind of doing when we were playing video games. Although I do wonder if when we hit turbo, do we really have like vapor clouds in space coming out the back of fighters? I'm not sure. Uh, Probably not. (laughs) I don't know if you watched the one about the fire in space with their their shooting water at... uh... I'm not quite, uh, I'm not, I don't have a lot of faith in the physics of yeah, that. The, you mean the physics of shooting water in space? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The vibe was cool. The bridge was cool. I want to talk about the bridge because I think, you know, if you're a sci- TV sci-fi fan, the bridge is always a big deal. That's a big set to think about. That's sort of the first thing that I think show designers think about is like, what's our bridge going to look like? 
Now, at this point, we'd really only had one bridge prior, or maybe we'd had two, I guess, given the Battlestar, the uh, Space 1999 taking place a little earlier. Um, the bridge here is different. The ship is a little different. It's got more of an aircraft carrier vibe than the Enterprise does on Star Trek. The Star Trek bridge is much smaller and more able to be contained in a single wide shot, whereas this bridge is at least, I believe, two stories and feels much more battleship-like. And I'm not sure that they used it particularly well, but it does feel bigger. It feels like there's more going on. I love the I love the design of this thing, and particularly loved it whenever we went to a, a red a red alert situation, and then we'd have these long scenes that were filmed on the bridge with that cool uh, red lighting. Yeah, the red lighting is cool. Yes. Yeah, I like that. I thought the bridge was you know like the special effects on the show, like other sets on the show, a really uh, well done art direction. I guess maybe it was hard to. Uh, maintain that set from the point of view of an expense where you feel like you have to both people it and fill mm-hmm. it with machines and stuff like that because they spent a lot of money on the on the computer technology at the time. Yeah. And when we get to Galactica 80, we get like just a corner of that space that's left over <laughs> with a bunch of monitors that are either running, literally running B-roll uh, from the, uh, from the, the spaceship. Series, yeah. Yeah, the space, yeah, B-roll from the, the uh, space battles or just monitors that are filled with ones and zeros. How about uniforms? What are, what's your take on the uniforms on this compared to something like Star Trek? Well, I do think they fit a little bit better and maybe somebody was paying attention to that. We didn't get those sort of those, those tight polyester things and there was, a, there was definitely this idea that these guys were warriors and so we were dressing them in these sort of warlike tunics which maybe were drawing from ancient Greece uh, or other ancient civilizations mm-hmm. so the uh, and and but the 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 leather jackets with the with the buckles yeah that the that the warriors wear I love I want one of those jackets <laughs> well those are all lifted entirely from Mobius those are all those influential Mobius designs from some of his seminal, kind of space comics that he was drawing. And I think they lifted that whole look, including the blaster on the leg with the strap around the thigh. I like those more than I like the pseudo Egyptian kind of vibe of the helmets that the fighter pilots wear. The only cool part of the helmet is the, the kind of rim of lighting when they, you know, they don't have glass. I do like the uniforms, the helmet with that sort of, like you say, that sort of Pharaoh Egyptian design is kind of interesting, but what is the helmet for? <laughs> I don't know. I think that, I think that the, I mean, they never, they could have easily explained this with like some new pilot going like, wait, no glass in the helmet. Oh, we don't need glass. Yeah. You see how it lights up. Yeah. That's a protective, you know, light barrier that, you know, provides 500 times the protection that glass would like. Right. It does. And it does kind of contain the, you know, the radio, the communication unit where they can talk to each other. I don't think you necessarily have to have a whole uh, pharaohic headdress (laughs) in order to have that. There's an episode in Galactica 1980 where they have to do a spacewalk Mm. and they literally take off those helmets and put on different helmets. Yeah. So I'm not sure that the helmets perform any actual function, but these are some of the ones that I think people talk a lot about. War of the Gods. Uh, this is a good premise, maybe even a great sci-fi premise, but ultimately is nobody is really quite up to following it through. I mean, a lot of times to me, 
on the Glenn Larson episodes, you have kind of an interesting premise set up in the first five or seven minutes. But then either, my God, over two episodes, like, do we really need this storyline to play out over two hours? No. But again, we're in this time where kind of the, the Columbo, you know, movie of the week type thing, the, the Wednesday night movie, you know, with this recurring roster of things, they were kind of confused about what this was going to be. And alternately, Galactica 78 was released as, you know, a TV movie. It was released recut in cinemas as an actual movie. And then it was presented as a weekly series. So there's some confusion over what the hell this was meant to be and what form it was supposed to take. To me, all of these double episodes do not need to be double episodes. I mean, I think that would have been, had they, had they the writing staff to just do two standalone episodes with the second one being an unrelated setup and premise would have been better. Uh, War of the Gods is also kind of cringy for uh, Patrick McNee is great. He's chewing scenery left and right. He plays this sort of omnipotent Christ-like figure or God-like figure. But then they make poor Sheba make out with him. Ew, daddy, <laughs> no. <laughs> so. Uh, She's got an itch for Ibley. <laughs> she does have to itch her Ibley. Experiment in Terra. This is the, this is kind of the mutually assured nuclear war episode, Right. Uh, it's pretty good. I kind of liked it. I think this is what we were starting to fear as kids. It's not my favorite episode, but honestly, if there's some undergrad out there in your listening audience who wants to talk about militarism in the United <laughs> States and the Cold War in the late 1970s, uh, this is the ideological episode of the whole show. Uh, and you can go back and take a look at this and watch Apollo's speech about how the opposite of war is not peace, it's strength. Exactly. Welcome to America. Uh, the Long Patrol, this is, this is the one with the B story you were talking about with Starbuck juggling Athena and Cassiopeia. And yeah. it also has the talking spaceship, which I think Glenn A. Larson would go on to use in greater effect in Knight Rider. So there's like, what's her name? Cora, I think her name is. She's just sort of saucy, uh, flirty, I'm in control version of the 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 jet fighter that starbuck is in for some reason yeah she talks back that's a little borrowed from star trek too and the hand of god listen i gotta give it a shout out it has a complete homage to 2001 there's a shot where uh the cylon is coming down a ladder inside a ship it's completely the same shot as used in the white environment of the spaceship in 2001 I think it took really most of this whole first season to figure out the mechanics of how we're going to use these characters in this setup. How are we going to use the special effects? And I, I think if not for the incredible success that ABC was having, they would have renewed this. Now, I guess it was up against all in the family against it. You know, you have a success. Well, I can just move my, my juggernaut to directly go head to head with you and I'm going to kill you off. Now, 28% of the audience would be pretty good. Right. This would, I assume that a consideration at this time in network TV wasn't the kind of highly targeted audience that you'd, uh, that you would go for now, um, you know, with the, uh, with cat, with uh, cable TV and streaming and all that, because if this show were being made today, of the people who are watching this versus maybe watching all in the family uh, are probably a more coveted uh, group of consumers. Let's talk about getting to 
Galactica 80, which again, Rick, I know I'm, I'm literally not trying to be like this guy. When I sat down, contrarian guy, I mean, I, cause I read the book and in the book, I'm just like, I don't really remember. I hadn't really remembered those episodes. So I'm reading in the book about kind of the making of 80 and there's, and every anecdote is just like what a disaster it was from the beginning. What a bad idea it was. A, these are some of the episodes I remember from my childhood. And B, I have much more fun watching these episodes. I think these episodes work better as hour-long, episodic comedy adventure television. And I guess a lot of that is because now that we are in this Battlestar 80 thing, each of the episodes has like a real-time America of 1980 component. So you have fish-out-of-water stuff going on. Yeah. So, and Barry Van Dyke, Dick Van Dyke's son. I mean, these guys have great chemistry together. They have cooler, they have cool motorcycles, Rick, that they can make go invisible. I just thought it was so much more enjoyable, even though, yes, it's completely ludicrous as a premise. And Adama is sidelined. Uh, it's very much those two guys show, Kent McCord and, and Barry Van Dyke. Um, but I, I actually like those. I found those episodes much easier to watch then I think the first 23 episodes of 78, I found pretty much a slog. I found it very, very hard to get through them. And it wasn't Uh until 80 that I rediscovered my joy for Galactica. And then I could go back and watch some of the 78 stuff and appreciate it a little bit better. Yeah. Well, I think that the the fish out of water premise, which is uh, well-mined throughout uh, you know, uh, sci-fi mm-hmm. TV would be good maybe for one episode <laughs> or maybe for a two-arc episode for a whole show. Uh, it gets old Come on, pretty the scouts fast. camping? That's gold, Rick. Oh, you know, the so guy inadvertently robs a bank. He's got to buy camping equipment. I loved all this stuff. And I loved that they sort of had to make it plausible. Like, how is he going to get the camping stuff from the store all the way back out to the park? Well, they've got to load it on the back of these, these sky cycles that they have. And they're being chased by the cops. I mean, it's just so silly and ludicrous, but again, that's what it needed. It needed a little more of that. It's a little too stentorian and serious. What I want from a sci-fi show is sci-fi. Yeah. And I just found this all very much like a show that has to start utilizing the, you know, the uh, fixed lots of the <laughs> Yeah, it has to go out and shoot something uh, in, in Burbank. That's, yeah. and, then think, and then think up a story later. Well, with sci-fi, didn't you think the medical stuff with the scouts was good as they're using their advanced sci-fi medical skills to diagnose and treat the children in a way that modern science couldn't at the time? Well, what do they do? I mean, they don't really do anything except the, the I mean, the, the job is, <laughs> is to get the kids away from the, um, the useless uh, earth doctors and get them in the hands of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the team from the ship. They don't, the, the heroes of the show don't do anything except maybe to, you know, or, orchestrate a way to get them from one place to another, right? I guess so. I, I just think that the way that that show is fucked up works for my brain. And I just enjoyed the hell out of watching it. I thought it was funny. Um, I liked, I just liked it more. I, I mean, I know I, I shocked even myself. I was like, okay. I thought like, oh, wow, that was such a slog to get well, through season one. Like, oh my God, this is supposed to be yeah. a bigger train wreck, but come to find out here I was just enjoying the hell out of myself in Galactica 80. Well, you do you, I don't see it. All right, let's talk alternative casting. Put that one back. The only real interesting part that I have is Don Johnson was considered for Starbucks. Yeah. And the reason that Glenn A. Larson says 
he didn't choose Don Johnson was he had a little bit too much of a Southern accent. And Glenn A. Larson was very fixated on this idea that we don't have regional dialects in his conception of space in the future. Okay. Um, Yeah. I didn't find much um, out there on casting Lauren Green. uh, If he was just the, the guy that they thought of from the very beginning. They knew they needed this father figure, this pater familias. They needed his stentorian believability and rock solidness. So I think he was the first person cast. And you got to feel for Lorne toiling to great effect throughout all the episodes. And not once do you see Lorne kind of winkingly not giving a shit in a scene or not giving his all. You know, to his credit, he's there, he's prepared, and he is doing the job, whether it's in Galactica 80 or 78. Also, I did not know this. Secretly Canadian, Lauren Green. Did you know that? What about secretly Jewish? I didn't know that either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's do Columbo's Cinematic Universe. Columbo's Cinematic Universe. Ah, one more thing. This show and the attendant research solved a Columbo Cinematic Universe for me, uh, which previously I had wondered about, which was, why are all these kind of old generation Hollywood actors showing up in these Columbo episodes or on Battlestar Galactica, because we have Ray Land, we have Fred Astaire, uh, we have Wilfred Hyde White. But come to find out, that's very much a universal thing, because Universal, even in 1978, 1977, was the only studio that had a version of the old studio system, where actors were signed to contracts and would be dispatched to perform day roles or supporting roles on movies or television shows that Universal was shooting. And apparently, given that we have, I think, Lou Wasserman and Sid Sheinberg at the helm of Universal at this time, those guys are very much old school Hollywood guys who go back to you know, the 50s, the 40s, and the 50s. And so it's, it's their relationships with people like Fred Astaire and Ray Milland and Wilford Hyde White and all of the people that traipse through Columbo, which is also a Universal production. So that kind of answered uh-huh. for me why we had that element of these kind of scenery-chewing older stars appearing as guest stars. So you're telling me that in 1978 that these, these huge Hollywood, you know, huge stars from, um, from old Hollywood, like Fred Astaire and Ray Bolger, were under contract? No, no. those the- guys were not under contract. I'm saying that Universal still had a version of the old studio system where actors of that magnitude were under contract. Given that you had a titanic Hollywood figure like Lou Wasserman in charge, they still used some of that and their relationships. Lou Wasserman's relationships were with people like Ray Bolger and Fred Astaire uh, and all of that that ilk, Ray Milland, you know, these former stars. Now remember, Fred Astaire is not a huge star in 1978. Ray Milland is not a huge star. And these guys are kind of past it. And so it's their relationships with Lou Wasserman and with Sid Sheinberg that allow them to do these great turns. And Fred Astaire does a great turn in that episode, by the way. I thought he's very enjoyable. He's very, he's, he's really believable. He's got a very nuanced and layered character, even though the premise is a little hokey. He's really good in it. So it's not that those guys are under contract to Universal. It's just that Universal is still operating in a way that the other major studios aren't. So all in all, I know I slagged off many aspects of Battlestar, but I don't mean that I didn't enjoy revisiting it because this was such a big part of our childhoods. 
The toys were a huge part. Bigger than Star Wars toys for me were these toys. I think every boy had the toys, which would then cause the death of someone who choked on one of the little red capsules that the, that the, it actually wasn't the um, colonial Viper that the kid choked and died on. Uh, it was actually the Cylon ship. I didn't know that until I did the uh, research for it. Right. The evil Cylon ship. Yes, the ship. evil Cylon ship. As a kid shot it into his throat, I guess. And well, wouldn't you know it, he died. And then there was the kid who killed himself because he was so distraught over the cancellation of uh, Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, I feel for that kid. Because had he lived a few more years, I think he would have learned it really wasn't worth that dramatic of a gesture. But rest <laughs> in peace. Right. Well, there might have been some underlying there issues there. Uh, so the toys were a big deal. The marketing was a big deal. And again, this is why, like, my God, ABC was so dumb to cancel this show. If you had just kept the show on another year, it would have found its ground. I think a proper writing staff would have come in. The merchandising would have been off the charts. Like you said, you would have loved one of those colonial warrior jackets with the buckles. Right. But ABC wouldn't have gotten a piece of that. Well, they might have gotten a piece of it. I mean, even if Universal owned the show you know, ABC could have done anything. I mean, they could frequently say, look, we'll pick it up again, but we need to be cut into the business side. You know, we, we need oh, a piece I of see. the merchandising. Now, at that point, I don't think that merchandising wasn't, wasn't on their radar. And again, these were very old school thinking people, I guess. So, you know, ABC yeah. as a network, you know, was feeling themselves and they didn't feel they needed a show that garnered only, quote unquote, 28% of the audience on a given Sunday night. Anything else? Any final notes? You know, just final thoughts for me are that there's a lot to get out of Battlestar Galactica, depending on what you want to get out of it. Uh, and for me, in particular, the last third of the show is when things really start to come together. Um, a lot of the uh, the clutter, as you called it, uh, uh, gets um, taken away or or toned down in the show. And there's a lot of promise here for a show that uh, would have made a, a, a continuing show once they sort of got on their feet. And I feel bad that they didn't do that. There was a, one of your, thing was somebody on your Twitter feed who made a comment about the, about the, after the first eight episodes or show of the show, that was when things started to be taken seriously. And I thought that was a very intuitive comment because I felt the same way for a long time in the beginning of the show. I was like, you know, all this is, is kind of, space fights and laser guns and warrior dudes, bird dog and chicks. And it wasn't really until we get up into about season or episode eight and nine that I feel like the, the creators of the show begin to take the show seriously. It's, it's what um, Star Trek always had, which I think comes from having real science fiction people involved in the premise and the writing of the shows, because, you know, Star Trek, every episode, successful or not, it was about something, right? It was, it was about a, a weighty topic of, of, of existential being, and it used the arena of Star Trek to explore that topic. I think what happened in Galactica was they thought they were going to have this kind of great battle between Cylons and the colonial warriors, but what happened was since the Cylons are just robots and don't really have personalities, you know, outside Lucifer, um, and maybe, you know, a couple others, it was really hard for the audience to give a shit if a Cylon was killed or blown up. And so, you know, eradicating hordes of Cylon fighters in the sky is just kind of a video game exercise, which again, we liked as a kid because it reminded us of the games we were playing at home, mm. but it doesn't add any dramatic heft to what's going on on screen. And I think 
at the end, in that really great episode, you know, the hand of God, where you have this, you have the moon landing broadcast coming through and being deciphered by them. And all of a sudden, just with that simple premise and setup, you know, we've received some audio that we don't know what it is. Now, of course, we as viewers know what it is because even the beep from the lunar lander uh, communications system, I realized listening to this and paying attention to the Cylon voice production stuff, I was thinking that beep from the transmissions to and from the lunar lander and um, either the basecraft or Houston, that you just hear that beep, you know exactly you're talking about the moon landing. That's how, that's how in our oral DNA those sounds are. And all of a sudden that connects this show to something that it never really connected to before. So it is a big what if, um, what could have been. But it, it accomplished a lot for being as flawed as it really is as a dramatic series. And it has a lot going for it, even though some of the execution and the writing is not always up to par. Um, it's got enough charm to keep you watching. And again, special shout out to Battlestar AD, which <laughs> he just, I don't know. I think if you like this podcast, you're going to at least enjoy the overt silliness of those episodes. Well, that's it for this episode, Rick. Uh, we're going to have to think about what to do next. Oh, I think I know what we're going to do next. Should we tease it now? I'm eager to find out. I think we're going to do the Muppet Show, the definitive episode on the Muppet Show. Yeah, I, I look forward to that. It should be a lot of fun. I've started watching some of the episodes, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of memories and just a whole thing with the Muppet Show about audience address and who this show is for. It's it's pretty good. I really appreciate you coming on and revisiting Battlestar Galactica. It's always great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. By your command. <laughs>